Hey, we've been talking about where God's leading us as a church and the fact that we are expecting a great awakening and yet we sense that we're not ready and that we need to be a people who are awake. And uh, last week I painted a picture for us uh, about what it means to go deeper as disciples in Christ. And uh, talked about just redefining, make sure we understand that a disciple has a head, heart, and hands that are, uh, that are fully engaged, fully alive, hands that are doing spirit-empowered works of service, sort of the dirt under the fingernails uh, look on our hands as we use the gifts God's given to us. And kind of call that the, the what of discipleship. And today I want to just give you a quick little picture of the how of discipleship before we get to Romans chapter 9. Uh, the how of discipleship, the way it's been explained to me, the way I was discipled, was that uh, this, this, this concept or this idea of a one up, one down, one over, or having someone who's farther along than me in my, in my spiritual journey who is, who is pouring their life into me like a spiritual mom or a spiritual dad. Um, someone who uh, kind of has that commissioning spirit to them, that they, they believe in me, uh, they, they, they want to teach me and, and pour wisdom into me. And uh, we, we see this picture in the New Testament in the relationship between Paul and Timothy, that Timothy is a young man growing up, and he has a spiritual dad in Paul who believes in him and who's discipling, giving his life to Timothy. Uh, that's the concept of, of the, the one up, the one down, the same relationship, Paul and Timothy. Uh, Timothy uh, having that joy of having that, uh, that person who can look up to, pours life into, and, and, and you as well being that person who pours your life into others. So that's the one up and, and the one down. The one over is someone that we do life with, someone that we, we are living the discipleship life with, someone who loves you but who's not overly impressed by you, if you know what I mean. Someone who believes in you, someone who knows you, but also knows that your tendencies, your failures, your successes, and, and, and they're okay with that. And again, we see this in Scripture in that, in that relationship between Paul and Barnabas. Those two guys, didn't always, they didn't always agree, but they supported each other. They were there for each other. And uh, so this idea of uh, the one up, uh, a Paul, a one down, a Timothy, and a one over, a Barnabas, what would happen if each and every one of us had someone that was pouring their life into you. It was just believed in us, had that commissioning attitude toward us, was giving their life away to us, and we all had people that we were doing life with, and we all believed that God called us to then give our life away to others. And if that could be deposited in each and every one of us, and we lived that call out, I believe what that will do is not only take us deeper, but it will, st- it will spark something in us and we will live a discipleship life, which, by the way, discipleship is not an individual sport. It's a team sport. And we're meant to do this journey together. And the how of it is this idea of us one up, one down, one over. We'll talk specifics about that in, in the months to come. But I wanted just to drop that picture of the how of discipleship in your heads and get you praying, God, I need someone who could pour their life into me. Or I need others who, who I could do life with. Lord, show me somebody that I could give my life away to. And that's a bit of the how of discipleship. And, uh, and so as we continue to talk about being awake and going deeper, uh, we'll flesh out uh, more, of those, more of those pictures. Romans 9, go there if you would, if you haven't already, every preacher's favorite chapter in the Bible to preach. Just kidding. If you've been to the Bible study this week, you know that this one's a pretty complicated one. Uh, but, but we're, we're going to tackle it and, and look at what God's word teaches us and has to say to us today. 
This year is an election year. 1988 was an election year. And the two guys who were running for the office at that point in time were Michael Dukakis and George H.W. Bush. And uh, in, that, uh, in that election season, people were making speeches. A speech by Bush is one uh, that many of us uh, can remember at least one part of it. If, if you were alive then or you were watching the, or participating in the election that, that, that year, part of Bush's speech, my guess is that you will remember it, you will be able to recite it. Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to just read a bit of that speech to you as he is speaking at the Republican National Convention. And he's talking about his opponent, Dukakis, and the issue of raising taxes. All right? So here's what he says. My opponent says he will raise taxes as a last resort or a third resort. When a politician talks like that, you know that's one resort he'll be checking into. And everyone in the, in the convention sort of chuckles, like, oh, that's a cute little joke. And then he goes on to say, my opponent won't rule out raising taxes, but I will. And the Congress will push me to raise taxes, and I'll say no. And they'll push, and I'll say no. And they'll push again, and I'll say, read my lips, no new taxes. You knew that speech, okay? You remember that moment, right? Bush. The crowd in the convention went crazy. They went nuts. They were on their feet. They were clapping and cheering, and, uh, and Bush ends up winning that election. And, and that speech stirred the hearts of many Americans. The problem is, is that when he got into office and Congress came to him and pushed him, he hemmed and hawed and then, uh, then he, he raised taxes. And the American people did not forget it, that he had made this promise and did not fulfill the promise. He did not keep his word. And when the next election came along, there was another guy by the name of Bill Clinton who got up in front of the Democratic National Convention and he said these words, you don't have to read my lips, just read my record. And he made the statement that, look, that guy lied to you. And we know how important it is to keep our word. That, that when someone makes a promise and they don't fulfill the promise, that every time they open their mouth, you wonder, well, are they going to come through this time or not? It's like this aroma of suspicion and distrust kind of carries with them every time they, they say they're going to do something. Keeping your word is important because that, 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 that breeds credibility. And this very topic is the very thing that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, verse 6, what Paul, this is the question that the whole chapter is going to be about. Romans 9, verse 6. The question is, did God fail to keep his word? Did God not keep his promise? Did God have a, a read my lips moment? And what Paul is talking about is he's talking about this church in Rome Remember, it's in Rome, Italy, first century, uh, uh, you know, zero to 100 A.D. They're, they're, they're in Rome. We got Jews and Gentiles there. And the Gentiles are responding to the gospel. The Jews, by and large, are rejecting the gospel. Yet, the Jewish people would have said, wait a minute. Genesis chapter 17, verse 7, God made a promise to Abraham. His promise to Abraham is, Abraham, I will be your God forever, and your descendants for, forever, I will be their God as well. 
And yet here we are in Romans, and we've just celebrated Romans chapter 8, no condemnation, what can separate us from the love of Christ. Yet the Jews, the Jews have rejected Christ, and did God fail to keep his word to Abraham? So Paul, what he's dealing with here is an emotional burden as well as a theological one. The emotional burden is that his own people have rejected Christ. The theological burden is, did God keep his word? And by the way, this isn't some theoretical problem that has no application to us. Because if God did not keep his word, then what about Romans 8? All those things we were excited about. That we're going home and we've got a new home. We got, you know, nothing can separate. No one can accuse us. No one can con- condemn us. It's not a theoretical issue. Because we need to know, did God keep his word to the Jewish people? And that's what Paul is going to talk about. Now, I just want to tell you right up front in this message, um, we're going we're gonna to talk about some, some heady stuff. And so your mind, you're going to need to engage your mind in this. And my hope is that as you engage your mind, that by the end of the message, we'll make the journey from the head to the heart. One theologian has said that that's the longest journey that people will make. <laughs> from the head to the heart. So we've got to process some, some stuff and hopefully lead us to a place where our picture of who God is is enlarged. In fact, the temptation for me as your pastor is to come to a passage like Romans chapter 9 and sort of sift and sort through the passage and choose the stuff that sounds good that we can preach on and leave the other stuff out. Well, I'm not going to do that, okay? There is this... There is this deal where we, we sometimes we're tempted to dumb down God so that we can put him in these nice, neat little packages or categories and seal them up and put them on our shelf and say, this is what God looks like. What you're going to discover is that it's, you can't put God in categories. In fact, when you get done with this message, uh, hearing this message, last week you were happy, this week you may be mad uh, as, as we work our way through it because there's some, there's some pretty uh, mysterious things going on here. And Dallas Willard, uh, speaking about this very thing from Romans uh, chapter 9, uh, s- said these words. Rather than, uh, rather than dumb down God, Paul exalts him and magnifies him so that he will stretch your minds to near breaking point. And my hope is that this leads us to worship. In fact, that's exactly where Paul ends up in in the end of Romans chapter 11. He ends up in this doxology that we already read. I mean, God, his wisdom is... is He's so rich in wisdom. Who, who tells God what to do? See, we're in a new section in Romans. Romans 1 through 4, the doctrine of justification. Romans 5 through 8, hope and life in the spirit. Romans 9, 10, 11, we're dealing with the Jewish people's, Israel's unbelief as it relates to God's faithfulness. And that's where we're at. And Paul has us end in worship. We cannot alter the masterpiece that, of God that Paul is going to paint. Otherwise, we'll, we'll do what John Piper uh, says. John Piper, in this quote, says, If you alter or obscure the biblical portrait of God in order to attract converts, you don't get converts to God. <clears throat> you get converts to an illusion. So, engage our minds. Don't resent working your way through this. And we're going we're gonna to work our way through this, through, way through this chapter. I'm going to just kind of uh, read it bite by bite and let the picture uh, develop for us. So Romans chapter nine, I'm gonna read the first six verses here at first and listen to the emotional burden that Paul has as well as a sense of the blessings, the privileges of the Jews being transferred to the Gentiles. 
With Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. They are the people of Israel, chosen to be God's adopted children. God revealed his glory to them. He made covenants with them and gave them his law. He gave them the privilege of worshiping him and receiving his wonderful promises. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are their ancestors. And Christ himself was an Israelite as far as his human nature is concerned. And he is God, the one who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Well then, has God failed to fulfill his promise to Israel? And now what Paul is going to do, if you hit the pause button there, what Paul is going to do is kind of like an attorney, he is now going to bring these three exhibits that flow from chapter 9. He's going to make three illustrations to answer this question to say, no, God has not failed to keep his word. God did not have a read my lips moment. There's something else going on here that we need to understand. So he's going to lay out three cases, three exhibits to show why God has been true to his word. He has. He can be trusted. And so what he does is he answers the question right away. No. For not all who are born into the nation of Israel are truly members of God's people. Being descendants of Abraham doesn't make them truly Abraham's children. For the scriptures say, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Though Abraham had other children too. This means that Abraham's physical descendants are not necessarily children of God. Only the children of the promise are considered to be Abraham's children. For God had promised, I will return about this time next year and Sarah will have a son. Let me break this out for us. This is what Paul is saying. There will be people, Jewish people in the church and they're going to say, hey, wait a minute. We can track our genealogy to Abraham. We are physical descendants of Abraham. And God promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, verse 7, I will be your God, your descendants, I will be their God uh, as, as well. And so they're saying, look, I can track physically, I can track my genealogy to Abraham, so I'm in. I'm chosen. And what Paul is going to say is, look, you need to understand Not every physical descendant of Abraham's was chosen. And he brings up the story that we we studied last September. Remember the story of Abraham and Sarah? They're they're along in years, and God's promised them a a child, and uh, they're not really happy with God's sense of timing. And so Sarah, what she ends up doing is she ends up giving to Abraham her her, uh, servant, Hagar, and uh, this was common in that day and uh, not common in this day. Just want to make sure we're clear on that. And uh, so the servant goes to Abraham. Abraham then uh, sleeps with her and they have a child. His name is Ishmael. Ishmael is a descendant of Abraham. But then 13 years later, the true promised child, the miracle child comes. His name is Isaac. And Abraham and Sarah are so thrilled that they now have Isaac. In fact, what ends up happening is is that Hagar and Ishmael are sent away. Here's Paul's point. Hey, Ishmael was a descendant of Abraham. 
And he did not receive the blessing of the promise. So you cannot say that God's failed to keep his word just because the descendants of Abraham have rejected him. Track with me? In fact, what, what, the, what the Jews, would, as they heard this, they would have said, okay, you know, Paul, you're, you're sort of half right on this one. We'll give you that. Yeah, Ishmael is not, the, he's not part of the promise. He's not part of the blessing. But what you need to understand, Paul, is that, yes, it's not the children of Abraham and Hagar. It's the children of Abraham and Sarah. Sarah is the key. She's the mom. And that's the line through which we track our physical genealogy to which we could say we are chosen. It's the mom that makes the difference in this case. And so, Paul, you're wrong. And by the way, Paul, remember that Ishmael did not have good character. When Isaac was, when, they, when he was being weaned, they threw a party and Ishmael mocked, mocked Isaac and he was sent away. So Isaac had better character and he had a mother named Sarah who was married to Abraham. That's the patriarchal line, which then leads us to exhibit B, which is Jacob and Esau. And let me pick up the story again in Romans 9 as Paul is building his case. It's not about a genealogy to Abraham is what he said so far. And so now he's going to speak about Jacob and Esau. Verse 10. This son, speaking of Isaac, this son was our ancestor Isaac. When he married Rebekah, she gave birth to twins. But before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, she received a message from God. This message shows that God chooses people according to his own purposes. He calls people, but not according to their good or bad works. Remember the Ishmael-Isaac argument? <clears throat> Isaac had better character? It's not according to good or bad works. She was told, your older son will serve your younger son. In the words of the scriptures, I have loved Jacob, but I, but I rejected Esau. Or some translations say, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Now, if you have questions about that verse, email Brian Candelo at bcandelo <laughs> at salemalliance.com. No, I'm just, we're going to talk about that because this is pretty confounding, right? Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. What are you talking about? Here's Paul's point. Remember the point of their, hey, it's, it's the mom, Sarah. And it's, it's, uh, they're saying it's, it's good character. That's why Isaac, everyone in Isaac is in. Well, Paul is going to say, wait a minute. We've got, we've got Isaac and Rebekah. We've got the same mother of two children, and one is chosen and one is rejected. The mother is not the key. Just because you can trace your lineage to Abraham and Sarah does not mean that you're automatically in or that you're chosen or that you're under the covenant. Because Rebekah had two sons. Jacob, by the way, is in, Esau is out. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And let's remember, remember the character of Jacob? He wasn't exactly a man of integrity. He was a liar and a deceiver. Yet, God chose Jacob. The patriarchal line is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and Esau is rejected. Now, let me just show us a, a, a picture here. I, wanna, I actually want to show you a film clip to help us understand what God is saying to us. Because it's really important we understand this. Otherwise, we'll, we'll, we'll misunderstand what, what is being communicated in this text. 
I want to show you a clip from an old movie named Ben-Hur. Some of you have seen it. Some of you never heard of it. Um, that's okay. The main star in it is Charlton Heston. He's a much younger Charlton Heston in, in this movie. Of course, he's passed away now. Um, but in this scene, he's in the belly of a Roman naval ship. And he's at the oars. And this ship is about ready to go into battle. And in this, in this belly of the ship, there's 200 men at the oars. Every one of them is a condemned criminal. And as they're going into war, what, what would happen is the, the one who's in charge of the ship would give the order to have all these prisoners, uh, have them chained to their oar. And the reason this is, is in case the ship is sunk, Rome did not want any condemned criminal to somehow swim to shore or swim to safety and be saved. If this ship is going down, all these men who are guilty of murder, of theft, robbery, whatever the case is, they're going down with the ship, and they're going to make sure they're going to chain them to the ship. But what this Roman proconsul does is he, he, he shows mercy. And in this, in this clip, uh, the, the main character is played by Heston. His identity is a slave, and his name is number 41. Watch the clip, and then we'll talk about it. The reason I showed you that clip is that all those 200 men in the belly of that ship are condemned criminals. And what the, the proconsul, the Roman uh, proconsul, decides to do is to chain up all those criminals, but he shows mercy to number 41 and does not have him chained up so that he could live should the ship go down. And the ship does go down. Everyone else is lost, but number 41 lives. That's a picture of us. We are the 200 condemned criminals in the belly of the boat. And none of us, none of us deserves mercy. Remember, go back to Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2. Remember the days in the courtroom. Look at some of the words on the wall. Dark minds, foolish ideas, judgment, the wrath of God being revealed against us. We stood condemned before a holy God. And God showed mercy to us. He said to you, chains unlocked. He extended mercy to you. 
and you were able to go from the courtroom to the living room. Here's the point that, that, that I'm making. When you have a room full of condemned criminals and you extend mercy to a few and withhold mercy from the others, this is not an act of injustice. It's an act of mercy. And you are here today as a Christ follower because God said, unlock her chains, unlock his chains. And he had mercy and compassion on you. You did not deserve it. And he withheld mercy from others, and that is not an act of injustice. G. Campbell Morgan, a preacher of the past, was preaching on Malachi chapter three, that verse where it says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. He got finished preaching the message. He's at the back of the church after the service. A woman comes up to him and says, I just can't understand a God who says, Esau, have I hated. And Morgan pauses and says, ma'am, here's what I can't understand. I cannot understand a God who would say, Jacob, have I loved. You see, the reality is, is that we totally minimize. We have no idea the miracle of our salvation. We so have such a little, little appreciation for the miracle, the mercy that was extended to us, that God said, unlock his chains, unlock her chains. See, we've, we've reduced it to signing a card, pounding a white ribbon in the, in, in the cross, and those are all wonderful symbols. I'm not, I'm not negating those things. Those are wonderful things. But there is an awesome miracle that takes place in the human heart when they realize that they're in the courtroom and they stand guilty before a holy judge. Because our natural tendency as human beings is, is to be arrogant and prideful and say, who does God think he is? Yet God said, unlock his chains. Unlock her chains. And he chooses to show mercy to whom he will show mercy. And he extends compassion to whoever he wants to extend compassion to. And that act is not an act of injustice. It's an act of kindness. And so Paul is saying, look, God has not had a read my lips moment. It's not about physical genealogy to Abraham. It's not about having the right mother or about character. God chooses, in fact, he'll say in verse 14, are we saying then that God was unfair? Of course not. For God said to Moses, I will show mercy to anyone I choose and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. So it is God who decides to show mercy, and we can neither choose it nor work for it. Which leads us to exhibit C, which honestly makes this even a little more complicated. Because now we're going to Pharaoh, and in exhibit C, this is what Paul will continue to say. He'll say, for the scriptures say that God told Pharaoh, I have appointed you for the very purpose of displaying my power in you and to spread my fame throughout the earth. So you see, God chooses to show mercy to some, like he did to Jacob. He chooses to show mercy to some, and he chooses to harden the hearts of others so they refuse to listen. Read that again. So you see, God chooses to show mercy to some and he chooses to harden the hearts of others so they refuse to listen. So glad I got assigned this passage to preach this weekend. Hey, this is tough stuff. 
This is really tough stuff. What, what, what's he saying? Go back to the story in Exodus. Go back to, 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 to what's developing here. We've got the people of Israel, Hebrew slaves. They're in bondage. Moses comes down and he's saying to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh's going, no, I'm not going to let your people go. And, and yet, what's, what's going on here is when we read the story 16 times in the account, 16 times it says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And if you go back and you count number one, number two, number three, and you find out uh, the, the details of that, what you will find out is that two times it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Eight times it says God hardened his heart. Two more times we don't really know who hardened his heart. And four times it just simply says, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. What we are bumping up against here is the mystery of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. God's sovereignty and the tension between that and human responsibility. In, in our hearts, what we say is, well, did, did Pharaoh get a fair shake? Did he get, did he get a fair shake? Or, or God, did you, did you just harden his heart? Because the reality is, as you think about it, Pharaoh's heart being hardened is what made it possible for Passover to happen, for the people to go through the Red Sea and to get on the other side. And when they're being chased by Pharaoh and his armies, the water comes crashing in, and the people are dancing on the beach. And why do they get to dance on the beach? Because that guy's heart was hard. Which then prompts the question that Paul will go right to. Well then... You might say, why does God blame people for not responding? Haven't they simply done what he makes them do? And Paul says this. He says, no, don't say that. Who are you, a mere human being, to argue with God? Should the thing that was created say to the one who created it, why have you made me like this? When a potter makes jars out of clay, doesn't he have a right to use the same lump of clay to make one jar for decoration and another to throw garbage into? In the same way, even though God has the right to show his anger and his power, he is very patient with those on whom his anger falls who are destined for destruction. He does this to make the riches of his glory shine even brighter on those to whom he shows mercy who were prepared in advance for glory. And we are among those whom he selected, both from the Jews and from the Gentiles. And the next verse, next verse is what Paul is gonna do. He's gonna show you Old Testament uh, verses that talk about the Gentiles uh, being reached by Christ. And then in verses 27 and 28 and 29, he's gonna talk about the remnant of Israel that show that not all of Israel uh, is saved. And he's gonna end the chapter saying, look, the key to being made right with God is not the right genealogy. It's not having the, the, the best character and sort of earning your way. God is going to choose he's gonna, who's he's going to show mercy to. He's even going to choose whose hearts are going to be hardened. And it's only by faith in Christ that we go from the courtroom to the living room. God has not failed to keep his word. God did not have a read my lips moment. God has been true to his word. And yet, the questions come, don't they? Yeah, but, 
what about, are you saying, look, this is a, this is a mystery of God's divine sovereignty and our human responsibility. And I would just want to wrap up this, this talk by just for uh, a few moments here, just make some pastoral comments for us as we handle a, a tough passage like this one in, in Romans chapter 9. The first one is this. We, as created people, must humble our intellect before a holy God. We are created. He is uncreated. And don't you think for just a moment that the uncreated one, that God's sense of justice and fairness is probably just a little bit better developed than yours and mine. The reality for us is that we forget that we're lumps of clay and that God is majestic. We humble our intellect. Yes, we've got questions. Yes, we got what about and what, what if and and we'll get to some of that even next week. How's this impact evangelism? Well, we'll talk about that next week. But we humble our intellect before a holy God. And number two, as people whom God has said, chains fall off, be free, I'm choosing to have mercy on you, we must be stunned by his mercy. You were in the belly of that ship, and God said, unlock his chains, unlock her chains. And rather go to places of cynicism and doubt and anger, go to a place of gratitude because you're a son or daughter of the promise. You have been grafted in. We'll read these words in the, in the, in the weeks to come. You have been grafted into the holy root. Your story is connected to Abraham's story by your faith in Christ. So we humble our intellect before a holy God and we are stunned by his mercy because not one of us deserved it. We didn't have the right genealogy. We didn't have the character. All we received was God's compassion, which then leads us to the third, and that is worship. What else can we do? A people who were condemned, who have now been adopted, right standing, now we're sons and daughter, daughters, we find ourselves in a place of worship, worshiping a God who, who can measure his wisdom, who can understand his ways. He is the great and mighty God, and we worship 